Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It was around this time last year that we had a chat on the Irish Times Second Captain's podcast about post-prime Roger Federer. You get serious Second Captain's kudos if you can recall any of this obscure conversation. Let me refresh your memories, Murph and Ken. Mm-hmm. Okay, go on. It was sparked by a piece Bill Simmons had done with Malcolm Gladwell in which they argued that sports fans are coming to appreciate longevity a lot more when weighing up the parameters in these greatest of all time conversations. Uh, that if you can continue to do it for as long as possible, even when you're past your best, you should get some bonus points for that. In the case of Federer, I had a closer look. I chose 2009 as the end of his true peak years. It was the last year that he won more than one Grand Slam title in the same 12 months. Okay. So in the six years from 2010, the post-prime period, he won two Grand Slams, or he had won two Grand Slams, had come runner-up four times, and had made eight semifinals, eight further semifinals, that is. In other words, Roger Federer on the downslide had had a significantly better career than the vast majority of people who ever played his sport. But the last of those titles was 2012. I think most of us long for just one more. Mm. Now in his post-post-prime, he has landed another major title. The Australian Open. Post-post-prime Federer, Ken, took care of post-prime Rafa. Yeah. Is post-post-prime uh, double negative, though? The, do you now contend that he's back in his prime? No. No, I he's mean, even further post, on, Yeah. Post doesn't mean, like... Positive is not doesn't have a positive or negative. It just has a temporal. I suppose I'm I'm just describing negative. Just means after post prime. Mm. Okay. So after the after the after the prime. Okay. Almost subprime. <laughs> but no, I mean if you're after something, aren't you just after it? Then, you know, shouldn't it just be post prime? <laughs> so as I said, post post prime Roger Federer <laughs> takes care of post prime Rafael. You were you were happy, Murphy. You wanted uh, on Friday. You were hoping that baby fed would come up against mm. adult post prime fed. Yes. But uh, in the end, it was his old rival Nadal. Pre-prime Dimitrov. Now that Federer has actually beaten Nadal, yeah. are you happy that it was Nadal who got through to face him? Yeah. I know you're really not a Nadal man. It's just, no, he's not, no. He's not for you. No, he's not He's not for me. Uh, <laughs> he's not for me, Owen. Uh, I would not be a big Rafael Nadal fan, but that's fine. Uh, I think you're splitting hairs, really, aren't you? I mean, everyone just wanted Roger Federer to win one of these. Mm. Uh, so whoever he beat he beat in the final doesn't really make Oh, it makes a bit of a difference. It makes a bit of a difference that it was the guy who's had a hold on him over the years. The world's biggest Roger Federer fan, Simon, is nodding in agreement. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, listen, if you're asking me to retrospectively support Rafael Nadal in a 
uh, in his game against Grigor Dimitrov on Friday. Well, I'm sorry, it's, it's not. It's no. It's not going to happen. I always preferred Nadal actually because for Federer it always seemed to me as though it was just a bit too easy for him. He's like Mr. Perfect. Oh, Mr. Perfect, Roger Federer with his white Nike blazer. Honestly, mm-hmm. the most ludicrous piece of sporting apparel I've ever seen. You gotta let that one go some, some stage. Hmm? You just gotta let the, the blazer go at some point. I know. I haven't seen it in a while, but you know, he, he, he did practice as many hours to get to where he was. He didn't just get handed a blazer yeah, once he arrived he, at Wimbledon. He, he, you know, he was Mister Perfect. Like he's just Mister Perfect in every way. Even his hair was perfect. Hmm. Still, you know? just about hanging on as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, poor old Nadal. By contrast, is hmm. is looking weather beaten, <laughs> you know, worn down by the years, and he's still only what is he? We 30, were talking about the thirty. 30 yeah. <laughs> but you know, whereas Nadal. Was kind of never quite as talented, never, but kind of just through sheer force of will. You know, he was he was like uh, a kind of angrier player, like an angrier presence on the court, like more. Oh, come on, he really wanted. I was kind of admiring him, and then something put me off him, which of course isn't really his fault. But you know, it's difficult to look at him the same way, um, thanks to the. Uh, Spanish judges and what they did with uh, the Fuentes case. Mm. I'm afraid that the cost of the Fuentes um, situation, all those blood bags sitting around in order to be destroyed. It means you mm. don't believe in your Spanish athletes anymore. Well, it just, th- this is the problem. This is the problem. When you do that, you know, you know, Rafael Nadal has, has never been implicated in anything like that. But when you do that... The best case scenario for Rafael Nadal is that he's an innocent victim of innuendo swirling around, which is... Yeah, it casts a it casts a bit of a pall, you know. It's like, right, well, this 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 happened, and uh, and all of the Spanish athletes have to deal with the they they become victims of the lack of transparency. They're overshadowed a little bit by this by this thing that happened. Whether or not they should be, that's the way it is. Mm. Um, so I kind of come around a little bit to Federer, and I kind of respect that he. I mean, well, it's the, it's the argument that you're saying. I kind of respect that it's still at 35. He's still Mr. Perfect, <laughs> yes, and uh, his perfection has become charming again. It's gone on for so long because it's not. Yeah, it's not easy to to keep it going for as long as he has. You know, he's. Uh, I respect him. I'd imagine you'd have the. I'm sure he'd be delighted to hear that, Ken. I'm sure you, uh, you would also have a lot of respect for Serena, who's post prime. Well, in those years, in those same years, since 2009, well, from 2010. She's the same age as Federer, so it's fair in some ways mm. to make this comparison. She's won 12 Grand Slam titles. <laughs> Which also constitutes a pretty good career. Yeah, it's pretty good. Many, many tennis players would be happy with that career. Just the 12. We'll take 12 Grand Slams. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get stuck into the tennis chat in a bit. We'll also get over to Dave Hannigan in the US as the sports world rounds on, on President Trump after the ban on immigrants from seven countries came into effect. Well, at least one or two members of the sports world have rounded on Trump. Mo Farah, you know, your size comment, the Queen made me a knight, Donald Trump made me an alien. He's now okay. They've they've double checked it, and Farah's actually all right to travel. So mm. his people say that he is relieved, but he still stands by his criticisms of the plan. Um, and USA soccer captain Michael Bradley, most notably, he he had chatted to Grant Wall in Sports Illustrated, uh, just so just to give you the background. And so this is where this statement comes from. A few hours ago, I gave an interview to Grant Wall. Says Bradley, after 15 minutes of an interview that was centered around soccer and our national team, he asked me my thoughts on President Trump's ban on Muslims. I gave an answer where I tried to make it clear that while I understand the need for safety, the values and ideals of our country should never be sacrificed. 
Uh, sometimes when you hear a, a sports person say this, they're about to hammer the journalist for misrepresenting them in some way, or they didn't say what was put yeah. down there. You know, in this case, he says, "I believe what I said, but it was too soft." The part I left out is how sad and embarrassed I am when Trump was elected. I only hope that President Trump will be different than the campaigner Trump; that the xenophobic, misogynistic, and narcissistic rhetoric will be replaced with a more humble and measured approach to leading our country. I was wrong, and the Muslim ban is just the latest example of someone who couldn't be more out of touch with our country and the right way to move forward. I was just quite impressed with the, that idea that. He hadn't necessarily planned on saying anything, but it, it came out in an interview. He gave an honest answer and then thought, well, it was an honest answer. It wasn't, wasn't quite honest enough. And, I, and then he actually clarified and went a hell of a lot further than most sports people have done up to this point. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it, it is brave. I mean, it's difficult to do that. You got to, you, you know, if you're a public figure, to actually speak up against the president is quite a big deal. When he bumps into people in the street, Trump supporters, yeah. he's got a lot of annoying conversations to have. Maybe the... Maybe they're, maybe they're enlightening conversations for both parties. Who knows? The Major League Soccer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's sure probably, those conversations yeah, that's probably well. Yeah. Yeah. The Major League Soccer fan base may skew blue. Mm. A little bit, a little blue. But, you know, I'm sure it's not all that way. And, um, yeah, I, I, you got to admire a man who's willing to stick with his principles. In case... I was actually about to start reading the email. I've got to play the bed first. I've got a call here that says, you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned, not you, no me. Okay, ain't nobody f***ing with my click. Click, 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 click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. Mark Cole describes himself as a scumbag from the States. In case no one has bothered to send annotations regarding the wrestling poster Owen received in the post last week, some notes for you. <laughs> Funny if nobody had up until this <laughs> point. Mark, this is the poster that featured quite a bit of political incorrectness. You remember the likes yeah. of Lord Littlebrook competing in a midget tag team match. Yeah. That sort of thing. The, that show, 20th of February 1978, featured a world title change as the babyface challenger Bob Backlund defeated the evil champion, superstar Billy Graham. Graham is often credited in inverted commas, with bringing steroids into wrestling from bodybuilding in the early 1960s. And Graham's theatrical and flamboyant gimmick influences many of those fo- who followed him, including Hulk Hogan and Dusty Rhodes. Mr. Fuji, in brackets, Harry Fujiwara, and Professor, Professor Toru Tanaka, Charlie Kalani, were both from Hawaii, who became evil Japanese wrestlers in the 1960s and were WWF tag team champions. You may remember Professor Tanaka from his movie career, which included Sub-Zero in Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Running Man. I remember the movie. I can't say I remember it well enough that I can pick out particular characters from it. Yeah, no, long I, time since I saw that. Movie. Yeah, long time, long time. Yeah. yeah. Wow, it's not it's not one that pops up that often. Like, do, you know, do you know what I mean? Some movies you just end up seeing it once every five, ten years. I have not seen that. movie. Total Recall, for instance, another uh, irony staple. So I've seen that loads of times. Yeah, yeah. even remade yeah, recently. Yeah, well, of course, probably Colin not as good a movie. Our, our own Colin Farrell was in yeah. it. Ken. Yeah, I would, I would argue The Running Man probably a better movie than, or even the one where he's a cop. The Russian cop. What's that called? Red Heat. I've even seen that a few times. On, But The Running Man, no. And Native American hero Chief J. Strongbow was really an Italian from Philadelphia named Joe Scarpa. He was a long-time backstage official with the WWF, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1994. Way, way more than you probably care to know, I am sure. Well, it is, Mark, but I have now bored our listeners with these. If I, mm. It's just too real. These, these real names of wrestling characters. Just let them be the characters. Yeah. I don't mind if, if he's Native American or... I can't Italian. believe Mr. Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, they, they weren't actually their real names. <laughs> well, Mr. Fuji was close enough. It was Harry Fujiwara. Yeah, well, it's still not his real name. Oh. Mr. Fujiwara. 
<laughs> no, his name is Mr. Fuji, and his real name is... Ah, forget it. An incredible weekend of tennis in Melbourne, where Serena Williams and Roger Federer strengthened their claims to be considered among the greatest sports people ever, both of them overcoming long-time rivals. In the case of Serena, that rival just happened to be her big sister. Sinead O'Carroll, news editor of The Journal, is here. How are things, Sinead? How are you? Great, thanks. And Elaine Buckley, presenter of the Fair Game podcast, which focuses on women in sport. Elaine, great to have you in. Thanks, Owen. I presume you both enjoy the tennis at the weekend. We'll get into it in a second, right after we... I think everybody who watched the women's final in particular was probably taken by the post-match speeches as much as the match itself. We'll hear a little bit of what Venus had to say. Serena Williams. That's my little sister, guys. Congratulations, Serena, on number 23. I have been right there with you. Some of them I lost right there against you. I guess that's weird, but it's true. And <laughs> but it's, it's been an awesome thing. Your win has always been my win. I think you know that. And all the times that I couldn't be there, wouldn't be there, didn't get there, you were there. <laughs> Venus Williams has just lost a Grand Slam final there, by the way. I, I know it's to her sister and she's delighted for her sister, but it's pretty incredible to be that, that together, Elaine, immediately after a match like that. Yeah, it was as, as, as soon as the, the championship point was won, like Serena dropped to the ground and in an instant, Venus was around the other side of the net. Mm. First one there she met to help her up and embrace her. Like it was just absolutely magical moment, I thought. Their interactions together were if people watched it right from the start, you would have seen them in the tunnel. I don't think they even acknowledge each other in the tunnel. Now, they might have had breakfast that day. Nobody knows exactly what they do on, on these mornings. But there was no recognition that we're sisters who deeply love each other. It was all very business-like right up until, as you say, it just switches at the, at the end of a match. Yeah, it did. And, and Venus, Venus gave such a, such a brilliant speech afterwards. And like it was so little about her, all about Serena's achievement. But likewise, when Serena gave her victory speech, mm. she was so complimentary of Venus and the impact that she's had. She said there would be no Williams sisters if it wasn't for Venus paving the way. She said she wouldn't be at 23 without Venus. She certainly even wouldn't be at one without Venus. So it was just so humble and just so um, so reflective of their relationship and their dyna- dynamic, I thought. I think she sees it as a, as a win for herself as well. Like just anecdotes going back to when they were nine or ten and, and Venus is obviously beating Serena at that early, early age, being a year older. And Serena asks her during a changeover of a game, Will you let me win one? And <laughs> Venus just ignores her. And so she is, she's probably been teaching her how to be a champion. And then a few years later, Serena tells her coach she's sick of losing. And the only person she's losing to at that stage is Venus. Yeah. So, you know, she's learning from like, from her big sister. So she's big sister and tennis player all in one and coach. And I was going to say that must have been tough enough because Richard Williams, the father, was quite tough going. And... Uh if Venus was that tough on Serena, you can probably see how she was toughened up over, from an early age. And seems to be tough on herself as well. Um, I, I, I kind of welled up at the at the, the sister thing. I have a sister who's two years younger than me who's always been better than me at all sports. <laughs> <laughs> so I really kind of looked at her and was like, that's what I, when I see like my little sister do brilliant things, I, I kind of do that. That's my sister. A lot guys. of people were saying that afterwards. Yeah, Marion Bartoli, a great player in her time, she was on Eurosport. She said she cried. She cried openly at those speeches afterwards. It did seem to, it's very easy to be uh, cynical about quite a lot of top level sport these days but that that did seem to affect people in a, a quite a personal level. Yeah, I think cuz they've made such an impact on the sport as well and that they've done that while still remaining as a family and still having that tight unit that they haven't mm. let the money or the rivalry or one person being better than the other impact them as well. I think that's touch people. They 
we're being given huge credit yesterday, Elaine, for how competitive the match was, which wasn't always the case when they played each other in Grand Slam finals. Were they given maybe a bit too much credit for that? You would expect players at that level to be able to put aside almost anything to compete strongly? Yeah, people have, have spoken in the past about how Williams finals are somewhat of a letdown, that they're not as competitive as other matchups might be. But I don't really agree. Like yesterday's final, it's almost like they know each other so well that it becomes this really intricate war of attrition. It's like they, they know what way they're going to serve. They know what way they're going to return. So to, it becomes a game of millimetres where they really have to choose their choose their shots so precisely in order to win every single point. Mm. And I think that showed in yesterday's game in particular in, in relation to Serena's serve. Like it's it's the greatest serve in, in, in the game. And she double faulted several times because she has to be she she has to go for the ace in order to beat Venus. Mm. And then when she goes to second serve, Venus is straight away on the attack. Like, you know, she really presses it for that second serve. So I, I think it's really interesting to watch them. Maybe yeah. it just and took them a while to get to get to that. Sorry, Sinead. Yeah, yeah and that, that's what I was gonna say, and I don't want to make this a, a men's tennis versus women's tennis thing, but I, I found it for really uh, very early on a pity that it wasn't gonna be a best of five because I thought it, like it took them a while to to get into it and then mind games come in a lot earlier when you're when you go into the second set and you have to stay in it that's a that's a big mind game for Venus and she has to win that set um to to even still be in the game so I thought from too early on it felt like it was a done deal once Serena had the first set in the bag and like at that stage you know six four there's only like a couple of shots in the difference and and you're kind of thinking oh this is going to be a you know two sets and, and we're done and it just didn't I didn't feel like we didn't get enough out of it I thought Venus did push her like it was by no means a pushover like in, in that second set uh, they had the, the, the longest rally of the match was on yeah. the second last point which was like she was not letting she was not giving it up easy and, and, um, Venus, and Venus won that won that shot and I think if there were if there was another, like if something had happened that they had to have go to another set, more moments happen. And I think you had a guy on last week talking about how there's no coaching in tennis and that there are these big swings in momentum. Luke Jensen, yeah, because yeah. I asked him why that why that's the case. And that, that was one of his big points was that you don't get coached. Well, you do sometimes get coached, but you're not supposed to get coached yeah. during matches. So it can easily swing twice or three times momentum in one set. Yeah, So and if you have big points like that and Venus wins it and you get a little bit of confidence. But if at the back of your mind, every game, every point is a must must win then it does kind of influence I think a little bit the the outcome it, it was such an unusual start to the match as well like them both breaking each other's serve twice yeah. a smashed racket in the third game from Serena like the, the stakes were the pressure was on her like the stakes were really high and I think the way it started really really showed that they were both really up for it disgraceful behaviour I, I definitely have never smashed a tennis racket <laughs> when I played as a, as a teenager Martin Samuel from the Daily Mail says that uh, she should be that Serena should be in the conversation for greatest sports person ever so she says Muhammad Ali sorry he says Muhammad Ali Michael Jordan Usain Bolt Jack Nicholas, Pele Roger Federer Sir Donald Bradman, Serena Williams, the greatest of all time. There should be no discussion now, no caveats that make a play of gender or wonder how many men she would have beaten. What's your thought on that, Elaine? She's bristled in the past at the idea of being classed as one of the great sports women uh, because really she's one should, should be considered one of the great sports people of all time. I completely agree. Like she has, She's won the most Grand Slam titles in the open era, regardless of gender. And she wrote a brilliant, just at the end of last year, she wrote a brilliant open letter to women, um, kind of, you know, acknowledging what she has achieved herself and calling on women to never settle for, for being called the greatest women when they've actually achieved more to just take gender out of it and it was it was a really powerful open letter from 
from Serena and just every woman should read it. It's brilliant. Is that important? Do you think an important part of it? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's her being her mindset. I think her coach says she never says she's the best. She always says, I don't think I'm at my best yet. And the minute she says she's at her best, she, she'll be done. She's always striving. And I, I think that like when she was younger, she used to think that she could beat McEnroe. And like, so... That's how we have to think as sports women. I think you don't like we're playing different games, and that doesn't mean that she thinks that she can beat every man out there. But she doesn't have to. That's not the game she's playing. So, yeah, you should look at yourself as a sports person and be the best sports person. What sort of an impact has she had in that way? Has Serena had? Do you think on how on, on maybe changing views of women's sport? I think Serena and Venus. I'd, I'd probably put them together yeah. in that. I think. And tennis as well. I think when you look back, say, like our childhoods, probably, like if you think of how many sports women you'd even know to emulate, like you're thinking Selles, Graf, Hingis, you're not thinking, there's not that many people outside of tennis and athletics who would have been na- like big names back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and Venus and Serena just took that to a whole new level then in terms of what they could do um, in the face of racism, in the face of sexism, in the face of an absolute insane amount of um, looking at their bodies and how how their their bodies looked in terms of like being compared to other tennis players, other women, other sports women. That, that's gone on to quite recently. There's an article, I think it was last year, about Serena and her body compared to other female tennis players' bodies. Yeah, and I, I think it was being said from when she was like a very, very young child that, that her body was different to, and that has been scrutinised. And even when they used to beat their hair and, and how they dressed, everything was talked about like that. So what they have done for women and in terms of what they've done to make sure that there was equal pay, Venus wrote that letter in 2007 to make sure that Wimbledon was the last of the pay parity to make sure that they were getting the same money. And actually that struck me as well when Serena was get, handed the cheque. I think it was three. 3.8 million US dollars like that's unheard of but that's amazing to go into a class of boys and girls and I, you would think that if you asked like a group of nine year olds here how many people want to be a footballer probably a load of boys will put up their hand mm. probably not the same for girls because how like it's, it doesn't seem like a viable option for them or it doesn't seem like a viable career but if you see a girl winning 3.8 million dollars you're like hey <laughs> give me a bit of that it's interesting because the tennis is one of the sports where even you know like I'm 36 even in the 80s watching sport you were aware of the female tennis players you've named some of them there so it was it, it, it possibly led the way in certain ways in that the, the some of the top female tennis players got as much attention as some of the male tennis players, but like that, maybe not as much money, and maybe uh, that's what's had to what's had to change. Not just the money, but uh, to be seen on an equal footing. This is what the Williams sisters have largely driven over the last fifteen years. Yeah, totally. And last year, Serena was very vocal in the fallout of the the CEO of the Indian Wells tournament, making those just appalling statements about um, equality in tennis and equal 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 money. Um, she was. She was straight out of the blocks, kind of just saying that they're they're different sports. She has her achievements in her own right and she deserves, works so hard for for that money. But I think the thing thing about Serena, she's become become a a statistic at this stage. Like her achievements are just so epic. It's really interesting to look at what she has denied the other great tennis players of her generation. It's like when she won her first Grand Slam, the US Open in 1999, she beat Kleister Selle's Davenport on the way to the final and beat Hingis in the final. Like she, if you look comparably at the amount of Grand Slams that they have, I think her nearest is of, of her generation. Maria Sharapova has five, uh, Justine Hennan has four, Lindsay Davenport has three. Like mm. it's, when you look at the other people and and how those 23 that she has won have been lost by others, that just makes it all the more impressive. 
and no one even took a set off her this time out. Like, it's incredible are, what she can do. Are there any drawbacks, though? Some of those names you mentioned, essentially the Williams has ended some of those careers. Some of them never really came back uh, and competed. She possibly hasn't had a great rival in the way that Federer has had Nadal in the men's. Does she suffer for that when you're talking about it? When you, when, if we're talking about this in the highest realm possible and comparing her to the greatest sports people of all time? Um, well, like, her closest rival would have been Martina Hingis. I think their record against each other was 7-6 to Serena. Um that's a pretty reasonable rivalry. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty reasonable. Compare that with the one which is talked about most most often is with Maria Sharapova. That's not a rivalry. Serena is 18 mm. two. <laughs> She's be- she Sharapova hasn't beaten her since 2004 when she beat her to win Wimbledon. So I think her dominance is really, really, it's 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 just really hammered home when you look at those records. Yeah, but I think. Uh, sorry, you know, I think as well that uh, uh, you can talk about the lack of a rival or a rivalry or whatever. When you think of Tiger Woods and how brilliant Tiger Woods was as a golfer, in the end, you don't actually think of the tournaments that he won, you know, when he was really challenged. You actually just think about, right, in 2000, he was pretty much unbeatable in a sport where if you win a third of the tournaments you you play in, then, you know, you're dominating to an unseen level. I mean, I think at this stage, what you're talking about with Serena is she didn't have a rival because she was just so much better than everyone else. And it's so much better than anyone else we've ever seen. So, I, you know, I, I think that maybe while you're in it, like while you're actually watching it, you can think, oh, you know, it would be great to have a, have a rivalry here. If now, looking back now, looking at the numbers, it's like, well, you know, who needs a rivalry? Look but, at what this, this woman has done. And it also, it doesn't mean that every single match she plays is easy. I saw her in Wimbledon 2015 against Heather Watson and Heather Watson was, I think, two points away from beating her. And Serena Williams came back, I think she was three love down in the third set and came back and it was like it was that overused word awesome it was awesome to watch because she was able to pull it out and then keep it together for the last games and and win the, and win and she w- went on to win the tournament so they're not easy tournaments she's winning she's yeah. she's beating people along the way that have to be beaten who are like decent like brilliant tennis players yeah and she's been in 29 grand slam finals in her career 123 obviously and she's lost six the only person she's lost a final twice to is her sister <laughs> mm. Murph I really thought you were straining to make the nobody beats Maria, Maria Sharapova 19 times oh, in a row gag <laughs> <laughs> you, you normally don't need an invitation no to, I know uh, I was just about that one. the joyousness of the men's final was staggering it felt almost like a testimonial I thought a testimonial for two great players one in particular which was actually a Grand Slam final. It was kind of a strange occasion in some ways. Yeah, what a weekend to be in your 30s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, guys. We were celebrating wildly yeah, last Celebrating week. in anticipation yeah. of, it, yeah. of the finals, yeah. There was a figure skater at the European Figure Skating Championship, so it was 37. Wow, okay. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not aware of the age, the usual age profile of About your... 17. Okay, right. So a good 20 years older. That's, That's great going, yeah. yeah. What did you make of Federer? Oh, God, God there's just no words for Federer, are there? Yeah. He's just... I've, it was just beautiful to watch. It's and yeah, and funny that's a word that's used a lot in connection with him. But I kind of thought this weekend and maybe this tournament, people started recognizing belatedly perhaps the mental resolve mm. that Federer has shown. That he always shows in matches. We've talked about this before that he he always makes quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. Even in the tournaments he wasn't winning, he comes back from this injury. And doesn't he kind of said afterwards? Ah, I don't want to complain about every, everybody has injuries, but you know, at that age, an injury could often finish you off at the very top level. And then even within the context of the match, the resolve he showed in the final set to come from a breakdown against Rafael Bloody Nadal to win it. 
uh, it seems this is the first time that that side of it was focused has been focused on a bit more than just oh, the beauty and the power and the grace of his game. Yeah, like he, Federer hasn't been in a fight in a hasn't won a Grand Slam since 2012, and it's only now when, since he did it yesterday that you realise that you've been actually been really missing him, kind of being yeah. being at the pinnacle because he's just such he's just such a classy sportsman. Like he's even again going to the post match speeches, he was so courteous towards complimentary towards Nadal, and you know telling him that tennis needs you and don't give up. Like it was, I just too much so though. Yeah. I, I thought too much so. This thing of oh, if there was a draw available, I'd come on. That annoyed me as well because. <laughs> I'm like, you wanted to beat him and you talked about learning how to beat him. Like, you know, you were afraid because of the clay thing and then you've learned how to, how to actually, you've learned from your losses and and to go on and you, like, you were cynically looking at him and finding ways to beat him. You didn't want to draw with him. That just struck me as being a little bit too much playing, he's so media savvy, Roger Federer, he could be one of the most media savvy uh, performers ever. I think he's aware of what people think of him and how we're talking about him right now and I think he's happy to. Yeah, I I think he plays this like a fiddle to be honest. But I mean, I like, you know, I, as you're watching it, I mean, my reaction as well is like the guy is just unbelievably classy. And actually, it was only afterwards when I saw it in print, I was like, "Wow, why was I buying this? This is ridiculous." <laughs> well, you know, you're definitely smiling when he's saying it, yeah, but in the yeah. back of your head, you're like, Ugh. "That's actually why I like Serena as well. She's a bit more refreshing, like especially as a as a sports woman. Like, you know, she does things that are like smashing the racket or um, making the journalist apologize to her last week when he said that she hadn't had the best game and things like that. And some people don't like that and they think it's not classy or you know should be should be above that. But you know, we celebrate it. And some people we celebrate it in Roy Keane or, or whoever else so yeah, like it's an interesting point Serena she because she sorry to cut across the, the end of that, that point no. but I think you never know what she's going to say she's she's kind of she's a different communicator in that in that way with Federer you kind of have an idea what's going to come out of his mouth before it does and Serena that's definitely not the case no you don't know which one you're going to get and that's like yeah, interesting well, yeah <laughs> and I think as well that that's that it goes to the central point I mean Roger Federer is uh, a white male tennis player with unbelievable amounts of success, you know, handsome, loved by men, loved by women. I mean, he's coming at this from a, like pretty much diametrically opposed mm. to Serena. Every one, every single media engagement. I mean, Roger Federer, the world has for 20,000 years conspired to ensure that people like Roger Federer get on in life. And Serena, oh, he still had to do a lot of work. Well, of course. Don't well, just ob- coast to 18 Grand Slam no, titles. Obviously, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking about it from the point of view of his interactions with the media and his interactions with his fans. I mean, he's a brilliant tennis player. He has nothing to worry about except his tennis. Mm. Whereas if you analyse where Serena Williams has to come from, what Serena Williams has battled to get to where she is, I mean, I think it's only natural that the two of them are, you know, night and day when it comes to you know how they how they deal with media how they deal with uh you know with obstacles put in their way in life and in tennis there's a brilliant um, ESPN documentary or interview that that uh, that they did with Serena last year. It was was with um, the rapper Common. It's called The Undefeated in Depth, and it's basically half an hour of Serena talking about the obstacles that she that she has had to overcome, mostly in terms of her gender and her race. And you know, you're never going to see Roger Federer having to do a 30 minute in, in, like <laughs> you know tell all interview like that. But it's a really interesting watch, just to, again to put her achievement in perspective. Well, he could talk for 30 minutes about how he's had to improve his backhand to deal with Rafa. Nadal over the years everybody has their own cross to bear <laughs> uh, just a last one on that Serena's in this really strong position now and will be for the rest of her life really as, as an incredibly famous sportswoman sports person who has taken on some social causes over the years I'd be interested to see how she uses that now if, for example she hasn't spoken about Trump as far as I know she was asked about Trump last week 
is there in this new era where sports people do actually speak out quite a lot we're doing a piece a bit later on about the US men's soccer captain uh, who spoke out over the weekend about should we expect somebody like Serena to have a strong opinion and to voice a strong opinion on Donald Trump is that expecting too much of a sports person that they have to tell us what they actually think about everything yeah I don't think that there's a thing that uh, that they should have to or that it, it's a prerequisite just because you're in you're in the public eye that you must but I think with her she will feel like a leader I think and anything some in some way some people will feel that that is thrust upon them and um, because they have been lucky is the wrong word but because she is now living the life she she does have and I think because she does talk about the racism and the sexism that she faced she will feel like a black woman um being looked up to by people so I think I wouldn't be surprised that she would use her voice and she talks about that being able to use her voice for social issues and I think a couple of people were asking her in press conferences last week about you know if Twitter was around um, years ago would she have um, followed different tennis players and she said she would have so I think she's very conscious that there are people out there who listen to her and look up up to her I think that's probably the same across the board but, but when you are one of very few black women who are as well known as she is, that becomes even more powerful. Be interesting to see what she does after her career. I'm probably writing the obituary a bit early. She's got about four or five, well, at least more. She's taken pre med courses. She's a qualified nail technician. She's fluent in French. Yeah, she has her own jewelry line. She's she's been she's been. I think she's going to be okay. <laughs> <be> okay. <laughs> I also don't right. think she's she's going to be quitting anytime no. soon. Like who's who's going to like this year? She. Who's who's going to stop? Her? Would you put a number on it? How many Grand Slams she gets? There, there's always a danger now that she's one behind the all-time record, mm-hmm. the all-time record with, with oh, the open era and the pre-open era taken into account. That you can suddenly falter a little bit, even somebody as mentally strong as Serena. She's got a few other records to chase, though. Like, so, so she regains her number one world ranking again today. So she, currently, she's still behind Graf and Navratilova in terms of the amount of weeks that they've held the number one position, and she's also chasing the. The, um, the calendar years or the the, the Grand Slam mm. as well to do the four she's done the four of them held them all consecutively but not the same, same way the Steffi Graf I'd, has I'd love to see them both at Wimbledon yeah that would be good be a nice Venus and Wimbledon playing well <laughs> injury free yeah. that would I, be we, yeah we could be getting greedy after the, the last two weeks to be fair of uh, tennis that we've seen we're not probably going to get a tournament with as many uh, strand storylines as we got in the last two weeks we'd be doing well to see another one in the next thanks Mayor finally we have some good news <laughs> to talk about and you drag it right down Sinead O'Carroll Elaine Buckley brilliant stuff thanks a million thank you you may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies you may trod me in the very dirt but still like dust I rise Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides. Just like hope springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weaned by my soulful cries? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide. Welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak 
that's wondrously clear. I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of a slave. I rise. I rise. I rise. Yeah, beautiful stuff there by Serena reading I Will Rise by uh, Maya Angelou last year. That was on the BBC, remember before the Before the women's final women's last year. Final, yeah, it's women. amazing. The more I think about this, the more the sporting weekend was defined by friendly rivalries and gracious post-match speeches, both the tennis finals, mm-hmm. as, we, as we discussed, everyone being very nice. Either Frampton and Santa Cruz, whatever about being nice after a tennis match, these two boys were hugging each other before, before the, before the round, final yeah. round of a fight where they're punching each other in the head repeatedly, which is uh, sort of an interesting <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting way of shelving your emotions, uh, the anger that you need for the subsequent three minutes, just getting that hug in before. The trilogy was already being talked up as the fight was going on, actually. Frampton mm. says Santa Cruz has promised him that they can do it in Belfast. I don't see why Santa Cruz would actually do that. Well, I do see one reason. Uh, it could be... Um, a, a lot a lot of money if that's the case but we're going to have a lot of work to do Barry McGuigan will have a lot of work to do to make that fight work and for Santa Cruz to give up the advantage of being in Vegas well Vegas was you know was yeah. good, good stuff from both sets of fans but I don't know how many of his support would be able to procure tickets for the mm. the, Bel- the Belfast fight uh, there's also fever speculation around another fight again Floyd Mayweather appeared at the Frampton Santa Cruz bout he spoke in Sky Sports says that Conor McGregor the fight is likely to happen. I believe I can get my number, he says. His number being the amount of money that he would need to step into the ring and punch Conor McGregor around for a few rounds. Yeah. What are you? Uh, I've scoffed at this notion of this fight ever happening up until now, and I will continue to scoff until it actually happens, but seeing as everybody else is talking about it, I might as well ask you what you think. Well, you might scoff, Alan. Actually, I kind <laughs> of scoffing as well. Everyone is either scoffing or wants to see this freak show. And uh, that's why... It, I mean, if they were to do it, lots of people would pay to see it. Therefore, there will be a big pot of money, and it's a question of deciding how that's going to be divided. Conor McGregor is quite undiscriminating when it comes to how he makes his money. I mean, <laughs> he did a big event. I don't know if you saw any of this. The, no. So he did this like uh, live show hmm. uh, in Manchester with you know sort of five thousand people, himself and Ariel Hawani, the uh, celebrity interviewer, um, I mean, Ari Hawani, obviously the, the respected uh, MMA journalist, uh, but he came up to Manchester to interview Conor McGregor on stage in front of this huge crowd of uh, of people, kind of a Rolls Royce in the back, uh, just just behind the couches, you know, uh, <laughs> in with all this dry ice and sort of spotlights and stuff showing the Rolls Royce. And, uh, and uh, apparently 5,000 uh, Conor McGregor fans, all of whom had dressed up for the occasion. It was obviously like a quite exacting dress code, so they were all wearing sort of suits and waistcoats and nice shirts, and it kind of looked like a massive alt-right rally. You know, they were all, dre- <laughs> they were all dressed in that sort of... Yeah. <laughs> Just you know those you know that well tailored uh, look of the of well, the, it's the wo- you know woolen waistcoat yeah exactly yeah, yeah, it was a few yeah. of those but um, so it was like an hour or slightly over an hour of of McGregor uh, talking um, to Hawani and a lot of it was about Floyd Mayweather um, a lot of it was about other things um, he I mean he says at one point he's talking about uh, various kind of extracurricular 
activities that he could mm. that he ha has been doing or you know offers that he'd had um he he mentioned for instance he was in, he was invited to do the predator movie there's a new predator movie i think he said predator um but he couldn't do it because it was like eight weeks mm. um of a commitment whereas he, he said did you see that horse thing i did and, <laughs> and it was like yeah you know if you've seen he if he did these ads for like the pegasus world cup or something right. whatever that is some, well, I think that was what it was called. Anyway, and he said, uh, with that, he said, I got the contract. I just like went straight to the number and signed, you know, three days work for a lot of money. I just signed me just like, yeah, absolutely. So that's, he is quite undiscriminating in the sense that he's not, you know, if, if he thinks he's getting well rewarded for what he's doing, he doesn't really think about too many other aspects of it. He talked a lot about the, law of attraction this time. He was asked also questions from the audience and he, he really, he restated his belief that this really does work. I, the idea of visualizing where he was going to be, you know, I'd visualized me there with my two belts and now I've made it reality. This thing really works. Um, and which I guess is a way of describing kind of goal oriented behavior. I suppose, you know, people are always saying you should set goals and if you do, then the chances that you might fulfill you might reach those goals. It's increased. At least you've got an idea of what you're working towards. So I was wondering, well, what what is his next thing? And obviously, his next thing, you know, how, you know, once you you visualize all the things, so you've kind of you've you've now achieved your dream. So what do you now do? You know, that's it's kind of a an, another difficult. What's the next thing going to be? And obviously, the next thing is fighting Floyd Mayweather, because this is an opportunity. At least he sees it an opportunity to make a really really gigantic sum of money, huge. I mean. Um, as he was saying, you know, uh, what did Floyd offered 15 million, then Dana White offered 25 million. I'm just sitting there at home watching the millions go up, you know, um, whatever the, the deal would be. It would, it would all depend, I suppose, on how many pay-per-views were sold. And then the, the split between Mayweather and McGregor, whether it will be 50-50, 60-40, 80-20, who knows? What it would be. But it, yeah, but that, that's the thing. Would, would either of those men who are both quite motivated by money be willing to accept less than the other man? Floyd says he has his number. He said, I don't know what Connor's number is. I'd be surprised if he didn't know what Connor's number is or what number might be required. Mm. And I'd be equally surprised if Connor's number was to creep above Floyd's number if Floyd was sitting, he's still so keen on the idea. Well, you, you think Mayweather certainly would see himself as being the A list. Uh, the the A list competent, you, you know that that McGregor is like a a, a mounty a yappy challenger mm. to hit to him Floyd Mayweather the undefeated great the, the greatest boxing champion and so on he would probably think of himself as being the guy who should get more um, McGregor McGregor's negotiation or his his kind of bargaining chip appears to be that he I said well this is one of the things he mentioned anyway which is that everyone wants to fight me I'm the one who has the options if Floyd doesn't want to fight me I can fight Manny Pacquiao or you know whoever or he kind of listed off all the various sports or whatever he doesn't care you know it's just whatever it's just another day in the office you know whoever whoever they have me fighting you know like a Jaguar Secretariat you know yeah Secretariat wants to get in the ring with me then bring it on I say um, you know so he he, he he said he's kind of given it the impression well I'm the only person who has the choice of different people to fight, whereas any other any other of these guys, the only way they can make a super fight with you know hundreds of millions of dollars to be split between fighters is by fighting me. Mm. Um, I mean, he does seem. I think th there was one point where he was talking about uh, the the other fighters in the UFC, and he was very uncomplimentary. I mean, you know, well, that's hardly anything new. 
Yeah, but it was it was so extreme. Almost what he was saying about them that, it, for instance, remember we had Dave Hannigan on a little while ago, and and you know as a, he was giving a kind of critical uh, account of how you know his opinion of the UFC, he didn't hold it in a in very high mm. regard. You know, when you think about it as a as a sporting competition, I mean, how high level are these athletes really? Mm. You know, are we looking here at real high level? Warriors who could succeed in a range of sports, or are we looking at the guys who weren't good enough to be boxers and weren't good enough to do various other things? And the kind of well, if you listen to Conor McGregor, that's very much what we're looking at because the guys who he's the guy, the other people that in it are are effectively you know worthless. I mean, the thing is that he is. It's not like he's consistent in what he says. You know, it's not like he he sticks to one particular line because he is he he will then sometimes talk when he when he wants to praise an opponent, he'll speak really respectfully about them. I mean, it's, it's it's kind of what makes him interesting in a way. When you watch this, uh, a performance like this, which is like a stunning display of uh, bombast and grandiosity, you know, like a lunatic, a, a crazy, like, what is what is this nonsense? But then, punctuated by these moments of kind of extreme charm, you know, where, he's, where you can kind of, where he stops like screaming about what a like what a pussy Floyd Mayweather is or something, and then you can actually suddenly see this like kind of almost disbelief that he has at how everything is going in his life. You know, he's kind of like he's got this sort of enthusiasm, which is quite charming. You know what I mean? If even if you, you sort of dislike his his attitude, he talks a lot about like uh, people are always looking for handouts. You know, <laughs> like, what, why do I not feel any responsibility towards generally improving the conditions for fighters in this sport? Oh, people are always looking for, you know, a lot of kind of Thatcherite type stuff. It's, you know, it's a, it's confusing. Um, uh, it's difficult to sum him up. Yeah, it, well, it is. Well, well, we'll see what happens with the Mayweather uh, idea. But we're going to head now to chat to New York, to chat to Dave Hannigan. We're not talking about UFC this time, Dave. We are talking about what's been going on over the last couple of days. I mean, you've been living in New York for a long time now. Have you have you ever seen anything like the last couple of days? I, I haven't really. I haven't seen anything quite as, you know, the, the response, the spontaneous response from so many thousands of people. I mean, the scenes at JFK on, uh, on Saturday were pretty remarkable, partly because, I mean, you know, this is, sounds kind of stupid, but JFK is a very difficult place to get to. <laughs> to go to JFK to protest, you really got to commit to the protest. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is not a protest in downtown Manhattan. For so many thousands of people to turn up there in this impromptu kind of show of, of defiance and, and anger about, about what was happening, I thought that was just remarkable. And then, obviously, those scenes have been replicated at airports all over the country. So, I, 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 you know, that, that has been... That has been incredibly positive, and that has been something that I I haven't seen anything as organic as that in the in the seventeen years that I've lived here. There is something heartwarming about it, I guess. You know, there's there's an argument that it takes the edge somewhat off the reality of what's going on. But maybe I don't know. Maybe that's even a ridiculous thing to say. Like this this banning order that's in place now is what it, it's along the lines of what he said he was going to do pre-election. Now he's doing it, but the reality of it, I guess, is it. it, it no, all the words probably can't prepare you for the reality of something like this being put in place. Yes, but you know, I mean, you touched upon it yourself. Like we forget, there's a kind of, um, you know, I obviously have a foot in kind of in two countries, so I, I'm following the Irish response and and the mm. Twitter response, if you like, and the social media. But you forget, there's there are many, many Americans who. This is why they voted for him. 
this is what they wanted. It's it's not like, oh, he's done something that's shocked us. No, they're like, good. This is, you know, you have to listen to talk, right-wing talk radio over here. Um, and, you know, as somebody who lives here, I dip in and out of it because I think it's essential that you know, you know, the way people are thinking. And they are exultant at this. They think it's fantastic. They think the protests are George Soros-funded conspiracies put together uh, by, the, by, by George Soros to undermine the regime. You, you know, you could not believe the divide that exists here now and, and how happy so many people are with this, with this order, which, which may be shocking to people in Ireland. I, I hope it's shocking to people in Ireland, but it actually is exactly what they wanted. Dave, I wonder, is there much overlap between the kind of uh, right-wing talk radio you're talking about and sports talk radio, which is obviously huge in the United States? Do they ever kind of dip their foot in this area, or is it something they very carefully stay away from? Oh, we've, we've, had a, we've had, there's been a little bit of crossover. I mean, New York Sports Talk Radio, WFAN, would be the biggest, one of the original sports talk radio stations, and I think, you know, the most famous in the U.S., and uh, after 9-11, there was an unbelievably bizarre conversation in which they wanted Israeli citizens to take a loyalty test. And when this was when this was hatched onto by or latched onto by the media, uh, the tapes of the conversation went missing. And that's kind of, you know, so they, every now and again, they dip into it. But look, I, I've listened to a lot of sports talk radio during the election. A lot of people were for Trump. A lot of people saw him as a breath of fresh air and. You know, he was going to drain the swamp, to use the cliche. So, yes, there was a little bit of a crossover. And then when you get into the athletic world, the sports world itself, the athletes, you know, depending on your sport, you have athletes who who, who despise Trump and everything he stands for. But you, you have athletes out there probably keeping their heads down right now who are fans of his. Uh, Tom Brady being one of them. We don't know if Brady is going to be asked whether uh, would you expect him to be asked on media day much about his friendship with Trump? He has to be asked. I mean, the Super Bowl is Sunday. Brady has to be asked about that. And Belichick, uh, the Patriots coach as well, they should be asked. They, put, they should have their feet held to the fire on this, on this score. And, you know, I would not be surprised if there is some sort of massive protest in Houston uh, next Sunday night because, look, the Super Bowl, is, as you guys know, is the one moment that brings America together. You know, America literally stops on, on that Sunday night to watch the game and, and, you know, to be involved in that game. Even if you have only a, a passing interest in sport, you will. The Super Bowl is a social event that kind of stops America in its tracks. So I, I would, you know, I would expect something to happen in and around the Super Bowl in terms of protest and maybe disruption. We read out some of what Michael Bradley had to say earlier on, um, Dave, and it seems it's very strong stuff, uh, very negative towards Trump and what he's done over the last couple of days. He is the men's team captain, the U.S. men's soccer team captain. Is that getting much traction? Do people, is he a big enough personality in American sports being outside he's of the not, major sports? He's not really, you know, he, he's not a big enough uh, personality. Like what you need here is you need LeBron James, you need a Tom Brady, you need, you know, um, like a major baseball player. You need somebody, you know, one of these bigger, you know, bigger stars just to come out. And I, I would expect, you know, the NBA players were very vocal about the Black Lives Matter stuff. And, and they've been very good in terms of calling out injustice where they see it. So I would be I would be very surprised if the NBA didn't do so in the NBA players didn't start speaking out individually or collectively. Um, but again, you know, like the point to remember is lots of people out there, you know, in the golf world, loads of, you know, they've been in bed with Trump for years. And, you know, lots of people there. Um, you know, are probably very, very, you know, very supportive of Trump. So 
you know, their sport, I guess, reflects the divide within America. Yeah, I mean, Steve Kerr is the Golden State Warriors coach. He's had a lot to say. I mean, he's, a, he's always criticizing Trump. Uh, and I guess he's a pretty major figure in basketball. But where does that come from? Do you think that divide? I mean, how would you categorize the different sports? Where, what makes the difference between basketball, where a lot of people seem, um, seem to, to be willing to speak out or seem to have problems with what's happening, uh, and other sports like golf, football, baseball, maybe? Well, I, I think with football or with, with basketball, the players have so much power and they're so safe. You know, they're they're not endangering their livelihoods. You know, they're not they're almost untouchable. You know, you understand what I mean? Like Carmelo Anthony with the Knicks and LeBron James. These guys are are bigger than their sport almost, and they can they, they can say they can speak out without fear of reproach. In other sports, you know, the, the equivalent I suppose is is Brady in football, but Brady's a, a fan of Tom, of, of Trump. You know, um, and in locker rooms, I, I would guess the divide is where you come from. You know, people who come from the, the states and the counties within those states that voted for Trump, which, you know, many, many Midwestern and Southern states, et cetera, are probably Trump supporters. And, you know, that's a generalization. But I think that's the way it divides. I'm sure there's a there's a um, ethnic divide as well, you know, in terms of racial identity. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it, just like there is in, in, in the wider country. But just to go back to the to the Bradley stuff is, you know, this was very a very brave move for Bradley because, you know, he, he is now kind of stuck his head above the par- parapet and he's not he's not as untouchable as the guys that I mentioned. You know, he is not, you know, beyond reproach and, you know, independently wealthy and far bigger than the sport, etc. Just lastly, Dave, the IOC, Ian Herbert had a piece in this in The Independent today. Uh, the IOC's silence on Trump is contemptible. No way should Los Angeles now host the 2024 Olympics. And he's making the point that the IOC does not, uh, the IOC says it does not comment on the politics of sovereign countries. I'm sure you haven't had a chance to read this yet. We're talking to you very early on, <laughs> very early American time. But uh, as, as an idea, is it a bit optimistic hoping for uh, an organization like the IOC to be the ones <laughs> leading the charge on this one? Yeah. The IOC. The IOC. If, we're, if we're looking for moral moral guidance from the IOC, we're even in worse trouble than we think we are. Uh, but again, look, the Los Angeles badly wants the games. If that's a, it's, if if you're looking, you know, to hurt America or make America understand the the hurt that's out there in the rest of the world about this, this would be the perfect way to do it. But again, if we could rely on the IOC for that, um, you know, I, I think that's rather optimistic. But certainly in terms of you know. Um, box off of events the, the Los Angeles wants the games and this is this is a way of, of, of you know hitting hitting America economically and, and in terms of you know a glamour event if the Olympics is still that taking it away from it but you know Trump you know Trump what does Trump care that's that's eight years down the line you mm. know, or seven years down the line whatever it is that's a long way away for him all right listen Dave Hannigan always good to catch up thanks a million cheers guys thanks so he's almost like having a second captain in the team Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Steve Kerr was an interesting one to bring up, Ken. We've mentioned him a couple of times uh, since the Trump 
um, well, since the election. He spoke around the time of the election as well. He's, he's talking again now. Greg Popovich is another one, actually. But in the case of CARE, I mean, his background is fascinating. I don't know if you've talked to US Murph much about him. We've talked a bit about him on air, but had a chat when Brian was in was over for the show late last year and he put me onto an interview that David Axelrod had done, you know, the former Obama advisor. The, he's got a podcast called The Axe Files. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he interviewed Steve Kerr. Like, really fascinating life. Kerr was born in Beirut. Mm. His dad traveled around a lot there. He's like an, an academic. Ended up, he spent a lot of his time, Steve Kerr spent a lot of his time in his early years in Beirut, in Egypt, in all sorts of places in, in that part of the world. So he's a very different <laughs> uh, idea on, on what the world is to maybe your average American, let alone uh, your average Trump supporter. Yeah. His dad was ultimately murdered uh, in, uh, I think he was 52 years of age. He was working at that stage as president of the American University of Beirut. And he was, I don't know what you call it, an assassination when it's an, an academic like that, but he was uh, killed by terrorists. So I think... Of all the people to have an opinion, uh, and you know, when you're questioning the motives of a lot of people or mm. questioning their belief system, where does this actually come from? Do you believe in what you're saying? I think mm. Steve Kerr has got a pretty good grasp of the world <laughs> and how it works. Uh, definitely recommend that interview as well with David Axelrod. That's called The Axe Files. If you get a chance to listen to that. The whole thing is just so, so overwhelmingly stupid that you, that it's, it's, it's difficult to believe that this is really happening for the reasons they say it's happening. You know the the idea that that the the threat of terrorist attacks has something to do with the border security or the people that you let into the country is just so crazy. Like it's, you know, I I have a feeling that you know people who want to carry out that kind of attack are going to find a way to be able to do that. Are going to find a way to be able to get into the United States. It's not the most difficult thing anyone's ever undertaken. You know what I mean? There are more complicated things to do than get into this vast country with tens of thousands of miles of borders. The idea, this is just penalizing every, you know, everybody. It's not going to solve the problem. I mean, the problem is if people have this idea that they want to do it, where where, what, where does the willingness to do that come from? I mean, that's like a, a thing that's that exists in people's heads. I mean, that's the problem. The idea that you can... You know, by banning a lot of people from coming into the country, you can do something about that. It's just totally insane. It's so stupid that I can't believe they really think it's going to work. I wonder why they're actually doing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to remember, like, the the Eric, wasn't it Eric? One of the sons, anyway, tweeted the Skittles uh, photograph. You know, the, if if you were given a, a bowl of Skittles with 10,000 Skittles on it and you were told that three or f- just three or four of them were poisonous, would you, why why take if why would you take the risk effectively of letting in ten thousand or a hundred thousand or one million refugees if you thought that three or four of them were capable of doing damage to the United States? I mean, mm. at the time, the idea that you would that that could, the the idea that a, like a rational human being could make uh, an argument that stupid, that inhumane, mm. is it's so bizarre, and yet within a week. We we've gotten to that stage where it's actual American foreign policy or domestic. Oh, is it foreign policy or is it domestic policy? Either way, it's 
some of the most shocking things I think any of us have ever seen. If we live, if we all live to be a hundred, I don't think we'll ever experience the last ten days like we've just had. I hope you're right. In August last year, the then Olympic Council of Ireland president Pat Hickey seemed to be fairly sure of what was going to happen once his long stint had been completed. You might remember him anointing Willie O'Brien initially. Our understanding of it is that Willie O'Brien, who is the Vice first vice president at the time will do a stint up until Tokyo, and then the favourite at the moment to take over from him is John Delaney. So there's been a bit of water under the bridge since those comments were made only a few short months ago. Delaney's finished with the OCI entirely. He explained his decision in a statement that downplayed his role uh, in the he didn't do nothing, but he didn't doesn't have the time to continue do to do that, no, yeah. very little. Yeah, but Willie O'Brien, who served uh, as vice president, as I mentioned, Dickie, he's still trucking on. He's been acting as president since the scandal broke in Rio, and he's one of three people now going for the big gig for real. A couple of days ago, he was interviewed by Joanne Cantwell, Norty's Saturday Sport, so that he could state his case for the job, set out his vision, and answer a few questions. Some of them quite tough. Not sure he fully grasped his opportunity. We'll play you a couple of clips here. This, uh, The background to this first one is that there was an independent review, you probably remember this, by Deloitte, which took place after the ticketing scandal. It suggested a number of changes in governance the OCI should implement. So he assured Cantwell that he would be willing to make sure each of the 25 recommendations is provided for. That was a phrase he used in the lead-up to this clip. Uh, she pointed out that one of the recommendations, though, is that there are time limits for all executive members, that nobody serves for more than 12 years. And he's already served 20 years. So... How is he going to implement all these uh, policies if one of the policies would mean that he can't be the president and can't be involved anymore? So that's the background to this exchange. We have to look at that independent knowledge. We have to see how best it fits in to the framework of the Olympic Council going forward. What's best for the organisation? What's best to produce the best results for the athletes? And if it is two terms, I'm happy that it, it, it will be changed to two terms. But that's not what they say. They say 12 years. And you've already been 20 years. But I, I explained to you, I've been 20 years at different but roles. That's, but yes, but that's not what it says. It doesn't say within different roles. It says just as a, a committee member. Again, it's a recommendation. But you said you were going to implement all the, the recommendations. You said there were 25 recommendations and you would implement them. We will implement them. But not that one that would stop We you. will implement that one. We will implement it. When, when, when it's discussed and the recommendations are looked at and, and we will implement that recommendation. But if you implement it, does that not rule you out then of going for the presidency? Well, it will have to be implemented in line with the structure of the Olympic Council. You, you, have, you have committee members on, uh, that come in with no experience. You'd, you then have the officer board of the council and then you have the president's role and the secretary general's role. In the IOC terms, the president's role and the secretary general's role are the two most important terms. Every, everything in IOC terms is dealt through the president and the secretary general. But can, can you not understand, though, the point I'm making here? I do I understand the point you're getting. So, but you're saying you're going to implement them, but at the same time you're saying, well, only if we discuss them and then we won't implement them. Because if you're implementing them, then... We will implement them. But you will remain on will. for longer than the recommended 12 years. I've been, these are recommendations that have come in today. In order to implement them, I have to stay on and, and work on implementing them. Uh, <laughs> I sound like we could have gone on for another 10 minutes there and he wasn't going to fully... Well, the answer to the question is, if you're implementing them, then you can't be there to implement mm. them. There's, yeah, there is sometimes when you think that there is obfuscation going on and then... Sometimes you're listening to something and you think the the two people involved here are coming out. There is there are different levels of understanding of what's being discussed. 
there. I'd say it's obfuscation, though. I'm sure he understood. He said he understood the point that she was raising. Yeah. And But clearly he wants to be the president, so he can't implement that one if he wants to be president. So he's got to find a way to talk himself around that, which he didn't do very well. Like These interviews can be sometimes a bit soft-focused. I mean, these sort of candidate sets out their vision for their sport kind of interviews because by their nature, they haven't done anything yet. You're waiting to see what they're going to tell you, all these great things that mm. they're doing, and then you maybe pick some holes in that. In this case, he was part of a previous regime which blew up in flames in Rio so he must have expected some of these tricky questions and uh, didn't really have very coherent answers for them yeah he, uh, uh, Joanne asked, you, asked him about uh, flying business oh fly, here we'll fly, take, yeah. fly, okay, sorry I'm over. cutting across here but we're going to take that little clip as president will you travel first class no have you travelled first class in your uh, time with the OCI I have travelled first class yeah often while athletes Travelled economy? No, never while that, at least travel economy. How did you go to Rio? I went to Rio for uh, business class. Busi- okay, business class, but the athletes travelled first class or uh, economy, did they? The athletes travelled economy, yeah. Is that something you will intend to continue or will you travel the same way the athletes do? No, I didn't travel with the athletes. I travelled separately. Yeah. No, I know that. But if they are travelling economy, do you think it is right that a member of the OCI travels in no, business I believed, class? No, I believe that everybody sh- on a long-haul trip like Rio, everybody should travel business class. Unfortunately, it's such an expensive uh, commodity that the, the, the OCI couldn't afford that. But they could afford it for members of the OCI? They, they, they could afford it for them, I, I okay. admit to that. Okay, Willie O'Brien, the very, very best of luck with your of... election. Thank you very much for coming into us. Thank you. Do you know how much it costs to fly these athletes' business class? I mean, it's unbelievable. Do you know how athletes. expensive these tickets are? Oh, that's very funny, isn't oh. it? Oh, God, it must be so annoying being in the OCI and having to, you know, suddenly... Oh, so you have to be ashamed of all the perks <laughs> of the job? You know, what's, what's with this new Puritanism? Time was, time was you could just go about your business, you know? Yeah. And now you're going to have to sit here and answer these questions. He told Joanne Campbell afterwards that he only has been on business class five times in the 20 years. Mm. That was a clarification. Well, it wasn't even a clarification because he didn't say, he didn't give any other number at that only, stage. Yeah. But he now not, he, not been travelling much or what? Mm, no, no well, now he wants to be president. Years, five, so, I mean, five business class. Is there, a diff- is there a distinction between business class and first class? Because he did seem to make that distinction yeah, in but his isn't whole fir- statement. But isn't first I went class business even... Class. Oh, yeah. I think first class is probably First class is first higher, class. Yeah, no, first class is the top. The top notch. Yeah. I'm not really sure, Ken, what differences there are. I'm different, sure, I'm sure different some airlines of our, some, call, call it different things. Oh, is that just it? There's not there's not first and business on the same flight. Well, there's different levels of stratification depending well, on no. which air, airline you want to travel Surely with. you just go left or you go right. I mean, oh, I think that's no, the no. level of stratification we're talking oh, about. There's, a, there's a man who's only ever travelled economy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it's probably best you don't listen to this next bit. But Owen, actually, in some airlines, uh, there are super classes beyond even... Beyond even... Beyond even business class, yeah. Oh, stop. I mean, I'm what, 5'10". I need those first class seats, Ken. Stretch these legs out. Uh, I'm never out of first class. <laughs> I, I literally, I've never flown business class. one of the great regrets of my life. Mm. Business or, or any higher level. Never. Of course, uh, Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld believes that you should never fly business class. Because it ruins... You inti- yeah, unless you're, you intend flying business class for the rest of your <laughs> life. Yeah. So, I, think, I mean, I, I think that there's probably a lot of sense to I that. think I am kind of... I think I am probably on board with that because, I mean, okay, flying flying economy class, especially if it's a long flight, can be a little bit annoying, but it's usually okay, right? I mean, what's yeah. the worst thing to happen? Deep vein thrombosis? Yeah, as long as you don't ever Do you, see how the other half flies, is that what you're saying? 
It's probably for the best. I mean, I can't. You need someone else to pay for you if you, you know, like someone like the OCI or whatever. If you're going to fly business class, it is insanely expensive. So either you're loaded or someone else is paying the bill. Um, and I've never been fortunate enough to be in that position. <laughs> maybe one of these days, although maybe, as you say, it would be the ruination of my, you know, in flight experience. The yeah. OCI will hold uh, their meeting on all of that in early February, by the way. Sarah Keane from Swim Ireland and Bernard O'Byrne, the former FAI CEO, he's now the head of Basketball Ireland. He was quite vocal in the aftermath of everything that happened in Rio. They're the other two candidates for that one. Oh, the Irish Times Second Times Football Podcast. Where are my manners? That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What yeah. did you know? I like to stay alive for six I'd like to go to the I'll say it to you, Fax. I'll say it to you now. I'm down 12 fields. I'm with Sheet. I'm with. What you doing down here, you showing me, man? Well, I only started off talking about the FA Cup, and within about 45 seconds, you were talking about US Ryder Cup teams of days gone by. Uh, we returned to the subject of the FA Cup for a while and talked about why. Um, why it's not that interesting anymore. We're telling you, we're explaining to you why you shouldn't be interested in the topic that we're talking about. That's well, why, no, problem. rather why you aren't interested. I mean, because the fact is that you're probably not. And why is that? We have an interesting conversation about why you're not interested. Let's in drill anything. down into that, as they say. Mm. So we drilled, we did a bit of drilling. A drilling. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, all. Thanks, Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.